This is an ABC podcast. And good morning. This is Pacific Beach on ABC Radio Australia. Eggy the Ball here for your Wednesday. Today on the show, Papua New Guineans are seeking urgent public release of information about a proposed dam that could cause maybe more harm than good. It's important and crucial for all of us. Um, what are the possibilities of the dam to break and what are the impacts? How hard has it been to apply for Australian citizenship for our Pacifica communities? $500 odd for one adult application. I know it's a lot of money for for some of our Pacifica families. Think about it as an investment in your future as well as an investment in your children's future here in Australia. And is Timor-Leste's China's next victim after a newly signed agreement? They don't uh, dismiss it lightly, but, uh, you know, these are from people who are misinformed, not really know the reality of Timor-Leste and the Chinese uh, relationship. Stay tuned for more of these stories. Again, I'm Eki Tupou and this is Pacific Beat. We start, though, in the northern Pacific, where a tropical storm warning is still in place over Guam and the northern Marianas as Typhoon Bolivin brought heavy rain and gusty winds overnight. Guam News Chief Regional Correspondent Thomas Maglonia is on the ground in Saipan, and he joins us on the line this morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Appreciate your time, Thomas. Firstly, what is the situation like on the ground this morning there in the northern Marianas? Right now, top, uh, Typhoon Belaven uh, is passing through the Marianas. The brunt of the storm has passed. Uh, it's a Category 1 typhoon, bringing winds of uh, maximum sustained winds of 80 miles per hour. Uh, the storm passed just north of the island of Rhoda, between Rhoda and Tinian and Saipan. And so at first light today, we're waiting to hear back from uh, the government, federal officials from the Federal Emergency Management Agency to get our first real damage assessment since everyone has been hunkering down since uh, early afternoon yesterday. So uh, we're still waiting for that assessment. However, we, we have been receiving reports that as early as 2 p.m. yesterday, people have been without power on the island of Rhoda, and uh, we are still waiting to hear back on what the extent of uh any damage might look like given those strong winds and about a foot of rain that has been uh, that the islands have endured in the last uh, few hours or so. Mm. Thomas, have locals, you know, they were warned about the possibility of a typhoon forming yesterday morning. So I'm wondering, was everyone in the community well prepared? Have there been shelters that have either been sort of set up with food and water? Uh, yes, shelters were activated uh, Monday at 6 o'clock for Saipan and Tinian and uh, early Tuesday for the island of Rhoda. Uh, shelters on Guam as well were activated Monday night, and we know that residents have taken shelter. And we have to remember that Typhoon Mawar was just a few months ago, so uh, disaster preparedness is still fresh in everyone's mind. In fact, Federal authorities are still on Guam from that previous typhoon and more on the way now to help uh, assess the damage, 
Um, in our reporting, as you might have seen, U.S. President Joe Biden approved emergency declaration early on for both Guam and the Northern Mariana. So again, at first light today, people are waking up and assessing that damage. Uh, there's still no change in uh, typhoon condition. Uh, there's still no change in typhoon condition. However, uh, Guam just made the announcement that around 10 a.m. they're expected to move into a, a, a less elevated uh, typhoon condition of readiness. We're still waiting to hear back from the Northern Marianas government on uh, on whether or not uh, we'll get an all clear. Uh, right now, the all clear hasn't been given. Uh, there are still some strong gusts and still some rainy weather Mm. Thomas, as we talk about preparedness, uh, once the assessment is done, what do or what can the community do? Who do they contact uh, in order to be able to get some assistance? Uh, the American Red Cross has always been um, a source of support here, and we spoke with the executive director once news of the typhoon uh, was reported, and they stand ready to send their volunteers Again, because of that emergency declaration from U.S. President Joe Biden, that has expanded the federal authorities' capabilities and what they can do for life-saving measures, community support. Um, again, it's still very new. Uh, the typhoon uh, closest point of approach was around 4 to 7 p.m. last night. So residents uh, were you know, most likely up throughout the night hearing those winds and rain uh, batter the island. Uh, so we're still waiting to see exactly um, what what the extent of uh, any damage is. And I know in everyone's mind, uh, the question of utilities power is, uh, is also of concern given that some residents have been in the dark for more than 12 hours right now. And so uh, we're waiting to hear from all the officials as uh, Crews last night were not able to be sent out as early as they would like because of the dangerous conditions uh, to restore utilities. Thomas, are you able to sort of give us an indication of how people are, are or have been feeling about this? Of course, there's always increased anxiety uh, because of just the increase of frequency and magnitude of typhoons here in the Pacific. Uh, Saipan is still in many ways including Tinian and Rhoda, recovering from previous super typhoons, U2, Sudolor, you know, just in the past decade, Typhoon Mancut, Typhoon Dolphin. Um, there are still some recovery efforts going on, rebuilding. So uh, it's still very much fresh in people's minds and people take it seriously when they're told to prepare and when they're told that a storm is coming. Uh, I think uh, that's one thing this community has uh, be become prepared for, especially, and they're, they're resilient in, in this in this uh, exact time. So, um, based on what I've seen and what I've heard, everyone has taken this storm uh, seriously and has prepared. Um, and right now, we're just waiting to see uh, what the impact has been. Mm. Uh, I believe a number of businesses and schools on Guam and even across the Marianas were forced to, to close. Uh, do you believe any of those will be reopened today? Anything in regards to maybe even travel? Right. Uh, I actually just uh, reached out to United Airlines this morning and, and then, of course, our local inter-island airline, Star Marianas Air. Um, we're waiting, uh, we, I know Star Marianas Air is out of business for today. Um, 
and we're waiting to hear back from United. In addition to some of the international flights, given that in the Northern Marianas, there are about 1,500 tourists who are still here um, and have had to hunker down with local residents as well. So uh, we're waiting to hear back. Uh, schools are canceled today, of course. Um, we are just really uh, waking up to um, and, and waiting for an all clear so that we can understand how we can move forward. And so it's still very much early on in the process. Absolutely. And I actually did want to provide uh, one of the latest updates I just got right now through text from the uh, Utilities uh, Corporation Executive Director who says, uh, Betty Terlahi, she just texted me saying, crews have been working already, assessments are coming in. We should have a better picture soon. As of now, mostly isolated issues on the power side. So that's uh, some news that just came in now. Awesome. Thank you for that, Thomas. I'm wondering what could be the outlook for the rest of today and later in the week, though? Uh, right. I think uh, I think it's just uh, assessment and uh, seeing how things were impacted by those 80-mile-per-hour winds and about a foot or more of rain that dropped on the Marianas, um, and especially the impact to the infrastructure. So um, we're just waiting to hear from local government. A lot of the advisories that were issued late yesterday as the typhoon, as Typhoon Bolivin uh, approached, um, haven't been updated since then. So um, I know flooding was a major concern by authorities as well, even if uh, some parts of the Marianas were not directly um, hit by the typhoon. Um, so we'll wait and see. Uh, but uh, we're going to keep a close eye on that as people wake up and start mm. to realize the situation. Uh, finally, I just want to ask Thomas, what would be the advice uh, for today, for locals today as they wake up? I think the biggest advice is, of course, to stay indoors until the all clear is given, um, even though the weather might have uh, become uh, less severe. Um, there still are dangers, of course, on the road, and that's the biggest thing that we hear every time there's a typhoon is not to go out and, uh, you know, if you don't need to, uh, especially as we just learned that power crews are out working. Um, we want to make sure the roads are clear and that we don't leave until the all clear is given. Uh, Thomas, we just want to say thank you very much for your time this morning. We do just wish everyone well and that everyone is safe. Thank you so much. No worries. That, of course, as Chief Regional Correspondent there at the Guam News, Thomas Magalonia, here on Pacific Beat. A company behind a controversial plan to set up a gold and copper mine near the iconic Sepik River in PNG has been urged to publicly release information about its proposed dam. The Australian-based Chinese-owned company Panos wants to build a dam on the Frida River, a tributary of the Sepik, is to store mine waste and produce hydroelectricity. An independent Australian body that monitors the conduct of multinational companies recommended Panos release its dam break analysis after investigating a complaint from opponents of its mining project. Liam Fox with this report. For Emmanuel Penny and others living along the Sepik River, the strength and durability of the dam that Panost wants to build as part of its proposed Frida River mining project is a crucial issue. If the dam must break, a lot would be lost. Not just our livelihoods, not just lives of Papua New Guinea, but this is an iconic river 
of the country, of the, the Asia-Pacific region. Mr Penny leads a group called Project CPIC that represents dozens of clans along the river that are opposed to the mine. He says it's no place for a dam to store mine waste and points to recent destructive earthquakes in Medang province and nearby Shambri Lakes as evidence of the risk. Papua New Guinea, like uh, a lot of people know, we sit on the ring of fire and one of the most seismically active places in the world. And so it's important and crucial for all of us to see um, what are the possibilities of the dam to break and what are the impacts. As part of its multi-pronged opposition campaign, Project CPIC joined with the Jubilee Australia Research Centre to lodge a complaint about PANOS conduct with the Australian National Contact Point, or NCP for short. It is an independent body set up to resolve complaints against Australian multinational companies over potential breaches of international standards for responsible business conduct. After an investigation, the Oz NCP's examiner recommended Panost disseminate its dam break analysis as part of future community consultation. Luke Fletcher, the executive director of Jubilee Australia, says it's good news. Well, look, we're talking about an absolutely massive structure here. We're talking about um, a, a dam that's, that's sort of across a gorge that's, that's going to take two and a half times the, the amount of water that's in Sydney Harbour. The Oz NCP also urged Panos to address the full lifetime of the dam. That is, what will happen to it after mining operations cease. Mr Fletcher says that is another crucial issue. We're not just talking about 50 years, 100 years. This structure needs to be maintained forever in order for the, for the supergrower to be, to be safe. And there's just no sense of, of how the company um, proposes to do this. In a statement, Pan Ost says it welcomes the Oz NCP's recommendations about future stakeholder engagement in relation to the Frida River project, and it is committed to implementing these recommendations. Pacific Beat asked Pan Ost if that means it will be releasing its dam break analysis. A company spokesperson indicated there would be no further comment. The Oz NCP's recommendations are non-binding. But Emmanuel Penny from Project CPIC says that doesn't matter. I've seen people preparing for a war and they'll say this is going to be another Bougainville. And I said, no, we're not going to do that. We will follow every rule and every laws and procedures and mechanisms to have these aired out for people to hear our voice. And that's Emmanuel Penny from Project CPIC ending that report from Liam Fox. Now, for New Zealanders of Pacifica background of large families, the cost of getting an Australian citizenship can look daunting. But children under 15 can be put on their parents' application for free. And migration agents say the benefits of citizenship are worth it. Since July, Pacific Islanders with New Zealand citizenship who have lived in Australia for four years or more have been eligible to apply for Australian citizenship without having to apply for permanent residency first. Dubrovka Volata with this report. Tongan New Zealander Ikiafi Tukino has been in high spirits since hearing about the citizenship changes in July. In all honesty, it is the best thing for us. It's like a, a big 
burden kind of um, taken off us. The 39-year-old Melbourne-based dad plans to submit an application for himself, his wife and his six-year-old son before the end of the year. We are in the process of um, doing it, just trying to gather um, all our paperwork and that. Uh, my thought was that like there'll be a big rush in the beginning. We would look to um, apply by the end of this year. The application costs for adults is $540. Children under the age of 15 don't have to pay for their application. But some Pacifica New Zealanders have been reluctant to apply for citizenship as they mistakenly believe they have to pay for their smaller children's application. Because a lot of the focus prior to the 1st of July was all about visas. People really haven't heard too much about the Australian citizenship process. Kathleen Siulua is a Sydney-based migration expert. It's always interesting to hear a bit of a surprise when families that have, say, for example, three or four children, five children, they're always surprised to hear that their children can be included in their application for free. While children under 15 can be included for free, there's an exception for children over 10 years who are born and have lived permanently in Australia. These children are Australian citizens already and have to apply for an evidence of citizenship, which is a separate application. It comes with a fee. That's what Mr. Tukino has done for his 13 and 17-year-old children. My two older ones are already uh, Australian citizens. We're applying for uh, recognition of being a citizen in Australia. Those over 15 years of age not born here have to pay for their own application, but at a reduced cost. This can add up, and it can become an issue for the many Pacific families who have more than one child. Parents have already said, a lot of them have said it's very expensive but they will go out of their way to do it because, I see, you never know what might happen. A community worker in Melbourne, Temese Leilua, has organised information events for the community. While well, we've got the opportunity in this window, opportunity for those that have been here for four years, now's the opportunity to really be part of society and get those supports in case, you know, you'll be eligible for all the government supports and everything. Monsieur Lua agrees, saying it's important to look at the longer-term benefits. When they do look at the cost, you know, $500 odd for one adult application, I know it's a lot of money for for some of our Pacifica families. When we talk to our clients, we, we say to them to think about it as an investment in your future as well as an investment in your children's future here in Australia. Benefits include the right to vote, access to the National Disability Scheme, unemployment and other benefits. It can also be of advantage for youths wanting to work in government or professional sports, which often require citizenship. Monsieur Lua's advice to families is to stagger the applications in cases where cost is an issue. When you've got multiple family members who are adults or, you know, who are over the age of 15, you know, the costs do increase. But I think that the a crucial matter is 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 that you not everyone needs to apply at the same time. It can be overwhelming thinking, oh, we've all got to do it, you know, at the same time. But there are other barriers apart from costs. Mr. Leilua again. So there were some issues around language barriers and that. So it's mm-hmm. finding the finding a person that can actually sit down on the computer and talk them through it. He says in those cases, children, friends or other family members could help. In many cities, community groups also offer information and support sessions. Families can lodge the online application themselves or hire a lawyer or immigration agent. The most important documents people need are their passport, a birth certificate and a photo ID, such as a driver's license. 
After a few months, those that are successful need to sit a citizenship test. The test is is um, a twenty twenty multiple choice question test. It's an online test, and the great thing is is that it's based on just one booklet. It's called Our Common Bond, and that booklet is available online. It also there is um, a few podcasts that you can listen to, as well as um, a practice test. Mr. Tukino, who's lived in Australia for eighteen years, says citizenship will make a big difference to him and his family. To to hear the cost that it is now, it's, it's it gives us a lot of confidence and a, a lot of encouragement to um to apply for citizenship. That's Ikiafe Tukino ending their explainer by Dubravka Volada. Now, Timor-Leste president has hit back at concerns over his country's new partnership with China, saying critics are imagining Chinese ghosts. The comprehensive partnership upgrades economic ties between the two nations and also includes plans to enhance military engagement. However, Timor-Leste president Jose Ramos Horta told the ABC the agreement is no different to what China has signed with other countries. It is only a framework agreement under which, in which, we uh, enunciate, uh, describe the uh, from A to Z the length and depth of uh, potential uh, existing and potential uh, enhancing uh, a partnership that we have had for a long time. And it will be up to each country uh, to define its uh, main priorities. For Timor-Leste, from my my point of view, uh, priorities, uh, agriculture, food security, water and sanitation, improving education, including infrastructures of education. That means more schools, uh, more classrooms, uh, water and sanitation for the schools, uh, nutrition for the children. And the, the health sector, uh, we need more hospitals. We need to upgrade existing hospitals, clinics. You know, we have doctors in uh, uh, throughout the country in every so-called suku. Suku is a group of uh, villages, uh, more than 400 doctors scattered around the country, but they have a very poor working conditions. So this would be priority for me under this comprehensive uh, strategic framework agreement, uh, whereby uh, we could ask for Chinese support. To, uh, it, it does, it does refer to military cooperation, though. What exactly might that involve? You know, let's say over the last few years, we have had uh, one uh, Chinese uh, military Navy visit, like we have had uh, American uh, more frequent, we have had Australian. Then uh, a month ago, we have an exceptional uh, visit from uh, for a Navy Chinese Navy hospital, super modern. Uh, I was very surprised, impressed. It looks like one of the top hospitals in uh, Singapore or Malaysia or Brunei. And they look after more than 10,000 people over a period of almost two weeks. So that's the kind of cooperation. And uh, we are not talking about military training because of that. We do primarily with uh, Australia, Portugal, and this ongoing for more than uh, 20 years. We do with Indonesia. We have sent uh, many military people for uh, Indonesian uh, academies, even Japan, we had Timorese going to Japanese Navy Academy and the US. 
I know you'll be alive to the reaction and responses that have uh, appeared in, in the Australian media from Australian political figures as well. Do you acknowledge well, the concerns or, or do you think that they're yeah, misguided? Yeah, of, uh, of course, you know, I don't uh, dismiss it uh, lightly, uh, but, uh, you know, these are from people who are misinformed, uh, not really know the reality of Timor-Leste and the Chinese uh, relationship. The number one, number one partner in the region, I would say Indonesia, our closest neighbor. We have a land border, maritime border, airspace with Indonesia. Uh, we have a very active day-to-day, daily uh, police cooperation, military cooperation along the border. Then, uh, as uh, but Indonesia doesn't even have a, a single military presence here. Uh, but Australia does have uh, dozens of military personnel training our defense force. Our defense force have been very happy with the cooperation with Australian defense force for 20 uh, or more than 20 years. And the same with the uh, U.S. We also have a permanent um, U.S. military presence here, Navy uh, engineers, you know, called CBs. I was the one who brought them here more than uh, 10 years ago. They've been here already, I think, 15 years. Uh, They do fantastic work, uh, helping rehabilitating schools, clinics, building new schools. I even have asked the chairman of uh, U.S. Joint Chief of Staff to increase the number of uh, U.S. Army Navy engineers. And they do also training of our own Defense Force Engineer Unit. And that's Timor-Leste President Jose Ramos-Horta speaking with ABC's Hamish MacDonald. Stay tuned because our news rep with producer Evan Wasuka is up next here on Pacific Beat. Celebrate the pride of the Pacific. You know, we're proud of our country and our heritage. Stay up to date with all the latest sporting news. So emotional every time you go out there and you sing the, you know, the national anthem. And hear inspiring stories from some of the Pacific's finest athletes. I've grown so much confidence within myself and I never thought I would be the player that I am today. Watch That Pacific Sports Show Wednesday nights at 7 PNG time on ABC Australia. That's right. It is that time of the morning to look at the wrap of a news wrap of headlines across the Pacific region. Uh, we've got producer Evan Wasuka joining us this morning. How are you doing? Good morning, Aggie. I am well. Hey, look, let's get straight into it because even there's one story we have been following. Uh, of course, as our Pacific Islanders have been caught up in this latest outbreak of violence in Israel. So I've seen some Tongans started to leave and are returning home. What's the latest? That's right, Aggie. It's a big story, a global story, and we've been following it and we've been looking at the Pacific um, side of things. There were about 200 Fijians who were in Israel over the weekend when the attack occurred. But on top of the Fijians, there's also uh, other Pacific Islanders, Solomon Islanders, Samoans, Tongans. So there's a big group that had been uh, there for the Feast of the Tabernacle, uh, which is a holy festival. Uh, the good news was many of them, they were in Jerusalem uh, when the attacks started to happen in Gaza. But uh, for the latest on the situation, uh, let me play you this recording from Tel Aviv Airport a bit earlier. (laughs) 
So, Aggie, that is the Fijian delegation uh, singing the Fiji national anthem at Tel Aviv Airport. Now, Fiji Village is reporting that a Fiji Airways flight is taking the group from Hong Kong on a chartered flight on the way back home. Now, this is the same return. This is the return leg of the Fiji Airways trip that had brought them in uh, for that festival, the Feast of T- uh, Tabernacle. Uh, so it's really good to see. And yesterday we also had the leader of the delegation on, and he was talking about how um, they were shocked with all the sirens that were going off on that Saturday when the attack had happened, um, but they were safe and that they were all uh, uh, keen to head back home. Wow. Uh, and yesterday was actually Fiji Day, uh, and Solomon Islands Prime Minister has actually paid tribute to Fiji's legacy in Solomon Islands. Yes, Aggie. So uh, what exactly is Fiji's legacy in Solomon Islands? Let me give you a clue with this. Yes, it is a Solomon Islands national anthem. We had wow. the Fiji one just before. But uh, the influence, the Fiji influence in Solomon Islands, well, uh, it's the national anthem, of course. Well, Prime Minister Manasseh Sogavare has acknowledged the um, Fiji for the lyrics and the music of the Solomon Islands national anthem, which is authored by Fijian-born Solomon Islanders Panapasa and Matilda Balakana. Uh, so he had said this um, yesterday during Fiji Day celebrations in Solomon Islands. The Solomon Islands Broadcasting Corporation is reporting that um, there was a Fijian community event marking the 53rd anniversary, uh, and Sogavare attended. Uh, the Prime Minister was accorded the Fijian welcome. Um, but, Aggie, it's not only the national anthem that uh, 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 Solomon Islanders can uh, pay tribute to Fiji for. Um, Christianity... Fijian missionaries play the key part in spreading um, Christianity across Solomon Islands. Uh, Sogovara also acknowledged this during that event yesterday. And he also brought that connection between Fiji and Solomon Islands going back to the black bedding days because Solomon Islanders were also uh, taken over to Fiji plantations, sugar plantations, uh, where they worked. And some have stayed on and they're part of that uh, society. Um, and then, of course, there was World War II when uh, Fijian soldiers also served in Solomon Islands. So, yes, yeah, so, well, a bit of a strong history between Solomon Islands and uh, Fiji, and that was highlighted by the Prime Minister yesterday. Um, and the other part, too, was uh, after the World War II, Fiji public servants were also brought in to work at the Public Works Department. So they played a big part in, in developing Solomon Islands, particularly Honiara. Uh, in fact, there's a part of the city called Fijian Quarter, which uh, is a sort of a legacy to the Fijian um, input into Solomon Islands uh, society. Wow. Uh, thank you for sharing that, Evan. Uh, we will just keep our eyes and ears on the situation uh, in Israel. I believe here Papua New Guinea's police have advertised internationally for senior recruits for its leadership ranks. Yes. Yeah, so, Aggie, this story comes from uh, PNG's post-Korean newspaper. So this is a bit different. So uh, Papua New Guinea is looking to open up its senior positions to overseas recruitment. Um, now, in the past, the Australian F- uh, Federal Police has... Offices embedded within the PNG Police Constabulary. Uh, we've seen similar arrangements in other parts of the Pacific, uh, like Solomon Islands. But um, according to this report from Post Korea, uh, the issue with this type of arrangement with the AFP is that uh, there's a requirement by AFP for immunity from prosecution. Now, PNG uh, does not want that. 
so instead, what they've done to solve this problem, um, uh, the Prime Minister James Marapi has told Parliament that they're opening up recruitment to 20, for 20 senior posts within the police force. So far, they've had interest from places like South Africa and Australia. Uh, so, uh, yeah, certainly an interesting time with uh, PNG's police force. Aggie, the other news that uh, also came out from Parliament in relation to the police force is that there is a formation of a new anti-terrorist unit within the police force. Uh, they say it is both unnamed and unmarked, and their job is to respond to major crime like kidnapping and other serious uh, issues. Wow. Okay. <laughs> uh, I believe we're heading now to Fiji, who is proposing uh, the setup of a traditional knowledge council to protect traditional knowledge, uh, safeguard patents and design. Give us the latest on that. Yeah, so Fiji Times is reporting that there's a new bill that's looking to establish a council that will protect uh, traditional knowledge and traditional cultural expressions. Uh, so this council, which will be set up if this new bill is passed, is uh, meant to uh, establish safeguards for things like patents, trademarks, uh, design and copyright material, especially things to do with culture. We've, we've seen issues in other places like Papua New Guinea where uh, traditional designs have been taken and manufactured uh, in, in Asian countries perhaps and brought back in to be sold. So this is one of the issues that they're looking to deal with. Now, this new bill is in the consultation process and if it does get passed, it'll become law in November. Um, so under this new bill, um, the Ministry of Itauke Affairs will be the one looking after it, and they'll be the ones appointing a council. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting time uh, in Fiji, and they're looking to strengthen these type of uh, protections and traditional culture, traditional knowledge, and these um, areas. I love that. Uh, Evan, thank you very much for bringing us the latest in regards to our news wrap and all the headlines around the region. Thank you, Aggie. My pleasure. <laughs> uh, you've been tuning in to Pacific Beat. For centuries, Pacific Islanders have been sharing stories across the region. Stories from the Pacific is a weekly program that honours that tradition, allowing you to hear in-depth personal stories from sports people to farmers, artists to teachers, activists to entrepreneurs with one thing in common, their Pacific heritage and a unique and incredible story to tell. Stories from the Pacific, Wednesday mornings at 9 o'clock PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. I'm Aggie Tupo and we've been tuning in to Pacific Beat. This week, Australians are heading to the polls to vote on a national referendum on a voice to parliament. But a group of Indigenous health experts say the voice to parliament will improve health outcomes for Indigenous Australians. And this study has been published in the global health journal, The Lancet. Elisa Gutsi reports. As the referendum campaign enters its final days, Anthony Albanese is crisscrossing the country, looking for every vote he can. Today, he was at Uluru. We're going to run all the way to Saturday. Uh, tomorrow, I'll travel to Melbourne and Victoria, uh, then uh, on to Sydney, where I have an event Thursday morning, then to Perth, then to Adelaide, then to Hobart, uh, then to uh, Sydney, then to uh, a couple of regional places as well. We are going to uh, fulfil the commitment that I gave uh, back in March when I said we were all in, uh, and we are. At this point, opinion polls spell doom for the Yes campaign, but the Prime Minister refuses to give up. 
maintaining that the voice would improve the lives of Indigenous Australians. Bureaucrats in Canberra will never make as good a decision as listening to people on the ground. And when we listen to people on the ground, that's when you see effective programs, Indigenous Rangers programs, community health programs, education programs to get kids to school, justice reinvestment. They all have something in common, which is they had that direct input from uh, Indigenous communities. One of the big criticisms of The Voice, which would form a body to advise Parliament on matters affecting Indigenous people, is that it would lack effectiveness. But now, a group of Australian health experts have thrown their support behind the proposal, saying it's the nation's best chance to close the gap. They've penned a call to action in global health journal The Lancet. The world eyes are on us to see how Australia will respond to its first peoples. Paul Stewart is the deputy CEO of the Lowager Institute and a Tungurong man from central Victoria. He's one of the authors of the article. What is happening now is actually not working. And that's what we were, we're trying to change. Paul Stewart says the voice is a vital step towards improving health outcomes for Indigenous people. The ultimate goal is that we all want to be healthy. And if we can keep our mob healthy, isn't that beneficial for not only our healthcare system, but for our country? One of those fundamental principles is being able to have a seat at the table. And as the voice is asking, it's, it's about... Um, having our people um, to advise on national policies that affect us. And when policies involve us and that are, you know, for us and driven by us, we get better outcomes. Meanwhile, Peter Dutton is doing his best for the No campaign. He was in Adelaide today telling voters there the voice would only add bureaucratic burdens and do nothing to actually help. All Australians want to help Indigenous Australians, uh, but we don't want another Canberra-based bureaucracy. Uh, We don't want another layer... Uh, of red tape that's going to make it harder to help people in those communities. Uh, And it's an unproven, untested model. And those of us old enough to remember ATSIC uh, know that we don't want a repeat of that model. And we want to see practical outcomes. The referendum is being held on Saturday. Electoral officials say three million Australians have already voted. It's Eliza Gitsy reporting there. The Flying Fijians inspired many around the world by beating Australia to help secure them a place in the knockout stage at the Rugby World Cup. Among them was one of the game's top artists, Leanne Gilroy. The English artist is renowned for painting portraits of some of the game's iconic figures, such as Francois Pienaar, Johnny Wilkinson and Michael Leach. As she told reporter Carl Evans, Fijian skipper Waisia Nayatalevo is the latest to be listed among her work. I just think Fiji have been amazing the passion and the pride that team have and Wasai is such a good uh, leader and come on he's he's so striking to look at as well so from an artist's point of view um, yeah I just wanted to paint him (laughs) so yeah and the Fijian people have been oh god they've embraced that portrait and the amount of messages I've had um, has been incredible really as an Australian, it was uh, pretty hard to, to watch what they did to our team, but as a Pacific reporter, it has been uh, yeah. <laughs> fantastic and uh, absolutely inspiring. Was that the first Pacific rugby portrait you'd painted? Ah, yes, it is, actually. It is, yeah. Many more to come, I think, yeah. And you, you touched on that reaction uh, online a second ago. What, what's that been like? Have you had many messages come through from Fiji and other parts of the Pacific? Oh, loads, yeah. As I say, the reaction's been incredible. Really lovely, really lovely, the reaction. I'm curious to know, um, when did you start painting rugby players? Was that always something that you did growing up or something you just sort of fell into? 
I've always, as a child, I've always been drawn to drawing people, the rugby players. I started in 2015 Rugby World Cup, um, which was off, obviously here in England. So was, there was a lot going on. Um, I got my my first studio um, in Rugby Town Centre. Yeah, so it went from there. I think Joe Marler was my first portrait, and he loved it, and and he signed it and stuff. So that that was brilliant. I was commissioned by World Rugby in the same year. I had my first solo show at rugby school uh, in 2016, which is where the game of rugby was invented. Uh, <laughs> William Webb Ellis picked up the, the ball 200 years ago. So that was amazing. <laughs> yeah. So uh, why rugby? Do you just love the game or did you come from a, a rugby family? Yeah. My dad's really passionate about rugby. He played rugby, just local teams and in the rugby area. But yeah, always, always loved it. And I'm really passionate about the game. Yeah. People keep asking me to paint football and I'm like, no way. <laughs> I've got no passion for football. Rugby is my thing. So, yeah, I have to be passionate about what I paint. So, There's a, there's a real personality in your work that, that really, I guess, shines through, through through the paintings I've looked at. As an artist, what is it about the, the game of rugby, do you think, that makes it for such just great artwork? Being able to capture the movement, I guess, um, with the paint, the passion and the emotion of the player. And people always say that I seem to capture the personality. I don't quite know how I do that, but being able to play with the paint and create the movement yeah i just i just think it fits perfectly yeah look and there's so much culture within the game as you would know is there a player or a country that that you enjoy painting um you know more than others i do love the game of rugby I, obviously i'm i'm from england and so you know england are close to my heart I'm, but i try to i try to stay neutral as as much as i can uh, the all blacks i love you probably get this question a lot but I, i'm curious to know where does the inspiration strike from you know like do you do you plan on who you're going to paint a long way beforehand or do you, are you just sitting there one day and then you see something it might be a line break or a scrum and you just think the, there's a moment you think wow i've got to i've got to capture that somehow yeah i'd say so it's definitely um, some pieces are planned like iconic obviously iconic moments that have happened years ago than than pieces are planned but yeah oh for sure yeah different moments keep popping up as i'm watching games and yeah it's kind of kind of an instant reaction i'm like wow yeah i've got to capture that moment on canvas do you have a favorite piece that you've painted at all the one of Wasai that I've just painted is that uh, it's quite different for me, like the, the colours I've used. And it's, I think it's going to kind of change my style slightly as in the use of colour and stuff. So, yeah, it's probably my, my, from one of my most, one of my favourite pieces, just a bit different for me. So, and I think it's going to change the way I work slightly. Oh, look, I certainly hope that somebody shows it to him, which I suppose brings me to my next question. Have you ever had any uh, big time buyers? You know, does, does Johnny Wilkinson have a, a piece hanging over his fireplace or anything like that? He has a limited edition print. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, there's quite a few. I've, I, have, I have been commissioned um, by rugby players as well. So I'm not going to mention names, but. Yeah, no, no, it's um, been brilliant. So, and and whilst I have been in touch with Wasai, and he absolutely loves it. So, and uh, and, and just lastly, obviously, we're we're about to enter the, the knockout stage of the World Cup now. So, really coming down to to the business end, have you have you got an idea of of who you might uh, paint next? Yeah, I can't say actually. I'm seeing how it's going to go, and then I will do another Rugby World Cup 
a couple of pieces before before it ends. So watch your space. Well, look, you're obviously English, and England do play Fiji uh, in, in the quarterfinals. Well, what do you make of that game? Oh, I think it's going to be a very close game and a tense game. <laughs> And that was English artist Leanne Gilroy speaking to reporter Carl Evans. You can check Gilroy's portrait of Nay at the Level on her Facebook page, Leanne Gilroy Artist. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beach. Time to take a look back at our main story today. Northern Marianas was hit by winds of up to 120 kilometres per hour. Saipan reporter Thomas Maglonia says authorities are assessing the damage from the typhoon Belaven. The question of utilities, power is also of concern given that some residents have been in the dark for more than 12 hours right now and so we're waiting to hear from all the officials as crews last night were not able to be sent out because of the dangerous conditions. I'll be back same time tomorrow. That's at 6am PNG time. You can hear us again this afternoon at 3pm. Stay tuned to ABC Radio Australia though because news is next and coming up after that is Nisha Daily. Pacific Beat was produced on the lands of the Bunurong and Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation. Again, I'm Aggie Dubol and this is Pacific Beat.